Lord God, once again, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity to gather to worship your name and to glorify your name as we proclaim your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning as we look in your holy word. We ask for your guidance and your direction in all things pertaining to what's your perfect will for our lives and even for those situations that each and every one of us is going through on a daily basis as we live here on this earth for the days that you've given us. And we also pray for the future of our church, Lord God, and we're excited to see what you will do, where you would have us go. Pray that you would give us wisdom and direction as we look forward to leading this church until your return. And we pray for our new owners as well, Lord God, that you would help them to figure out what they would like to do, Lord. And we pray for their business, Lord, and ask that you would bless their businesses as well. And so we thank you again for this day, and we give this all to you in your name. Amen. All right, so Isaiah chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15, and the title of this morning's message is The Faithful Promises of the Lord. So in chapter 3, we are continuing the prophecy of Isaiah, which he actually began in chapter 2, which we started about a few weeks ago. And just as way of recap, and a little bit of background so we know what's going on here before we start reading it, is that Isaiah has promised Judah that there is a day to come in the future when God will reign supreme. And that's obviously at his second coming when that happens. But before that day comes, he was telling them that Judah was going to suffer the consequences of their idolatrous faith, their rebellious faith, if you could call it that, that they had with the Lord God. Remember, they're the covenant people of God, and they have broken that covenant over and over again for a long period of time. And so God, in chapter 2, through Isaiah, was saying that he was going to abandon them to themselves because they've desired to sin against him. He was going to let them continue on, obviously in hopes that they would realize that they need the Lord. And then also God talked about it, Ultimately, he's going to have a day of reckoning, which we talked about last week, that God was going to finally judge them for their sins. And he was going to do that by bringing a foreign army to attack Judah. And if you know the story, Judah will eventually be taken into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying about here in chapter 2. Now, in chapter 3, as we come to Isaiah is going to direct God's condemnation on the leadership of Judah and Jerusalem. He's been talking in general terms. Now he's going to specifically deal with the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. Because those are the ones, if you think about, are ultimately responsible for the direction of the nation. You know, all the people that live within Judah are following their leadership. Their leadership, both governmental and religious, has drawn them away from the Lord God. And has caused them to worship idols. So one of the things that we're going to focus on is what about the innocent parties involved in the nation of Judah? Think about that. When we read this, you might think every person in general has fallen away from God. But they haven't. Those who have stayed faithful to the Lord, and in the midst of all this, they are also being directed in the wrong direction. So they have to hold fast to what they know to be true despite their government, despite the religious leaders of the day leading them the wrong way. 
And guess what? As we're reading these prophecies, what it looks like is that they're going to suffer too, even though they have done nothing wrong other than living in a corrupt nation. That brings us to ask ourselves some personal questions. Do we suffer for the for the sins of other people, do, in, in a sense that do we suffer the repercussions of their sins? Are we affected by the sins of other people? When someone makes a decision and they do the, something wrong, does that affect us sometimes? Yes, it can. And you'll see that here in the text as well. But what about, well, I've been faithful to God. Why does God allow me to suffer? Wouldn't God protect me and keep me because I didn't do anything wrong? We could talk about a bunch of scriptures that talk about that. We'll look at one specifically this morning. So if God doesn't protect them from the judgment that's coming on the nation, because we know we're looking back at the history of Israel, all of Israel is taken into captivity. There are very few people left behind. The ones that are left behind are the poor and the desolate. Every other person is taken into captivity both righteous and unrighteous. Why is that if the righteous were doing nothing wrong? Why were they not protected from the judgment? Another question we'll answer is, how are they supposed to live, the righteous people, in the midst of a horrible culture and a horrible society? Are they to give up and throw their hands up in the air and say, well, we're just going to act like everybody else? Or does God desire that they still live for him? The answer to these questions will also give us application I hope you could see in our own world that we live in today. So if our government decides to go a direction that is against God, are we bound to follow that government? Will we suffer the consequences of the sins of our government? What about religious leaders? If you're a religious leader, me being one of them, if I was to sin against the Lord in some heinous way and he decided to exact judgment on me, would you guys suffer? Even though you didn't do anything wrong, would there be some repercussions in some way? I think this is a great warning. This is one reason why I didn't want to be a pastor. <laughs> you know, I was never looking to be a pastor. It was like, well, they're holding higher. God has a higher standard for them of living. You're going to be held accountable even more so because you're leading people. Because you affect other people. So with that said, let's look at our text. And like I said, some of those questions we're going to answer about Israel And then we're going to see the application to you and me and the society and the day and age that we live in as well. So we're going to we're going to point out two things this morning in this text. We're going to number one is we're going to look at the Lord's promises to punish the wicked and the Lord's promises promises to protect the righteous. And we'll see how that plays out. So let's read verses one through seven. And this is again, he's speaking out against the leadership and how he's going to punish them because of what they have done. So starting in verse 1, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove you, excuse me, is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah, so that's the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem and Judah, both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty men and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable men, and the, count, and the counselor, and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. So you can see God saying, I'm going to remove all your substance, and I'm going to remove all your leadership. And he's going to do that how, again, we talked about this last week, and I mentioned it briefly this morning, by bringing in a foreign army to decimate Judah. 
So they're going to lose all those things. And in verse 4, he says, I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. You can see total chaos is going to happen in Judah because, because of sin. It's just going to unravel. Everything's going to turn around or be spun on its head. And when a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. Let's keep reading. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they displayed their sin like Sodom. They did not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So again, 1 through 7 talks about how God's going to remove the livelihood of Judah. And the reasons for that are laid out in verses 8 and 9, which I read. He's saying the words and the actions of Judah in general are against the Lord. They rebel against God's glorious presence. And the sad thing is, if you go back to verse, look at verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. So even though they rebel against God and in their speech and their actions, they parade it. Look at verse 9. Their expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they, do, and they display their sin like Sodom, and they do not even conceal it. So they're not ashamed of their sin, and they don't even try to hide it. They're just happy, like this is who we are. Accept it. One commentator describing Judah's sin here says this. He goes, it's not an occasional lapse, nor a shameful secret, but a public an an unabashed way of life. So we're not talking about, hey, you know, I fell into sin or I have this sin that I do every once in a while in secret. That's not what it's talking about. Those aren't, aren't good too. I'm not saying go ahead and keep doing that. But what I'm saying is the sin is is overt. Like, hey, I'm sinning against God. I know what God says and I'm sinning against him and I don't care and they're celebrating it. They don't conceal it. That's what he's saying. They're displaying their sin like Sodom. They don't even conceal it. And that's how the nation of Judah has been living for a long duration. It's not just a lapse. So don't think, oh, man, every time I sin, God's just going to pound on me. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's like I'm sinning against God, and I don't care. That's what we're talking about. If that's where you're at, then you're probably not a believer. You need to check your heart. Most believers, when they sin... Even when they do it willfully, we feel regret for it. We're sorry that we did that. I can't believe I did that, right? That's usually the reaction. That's not the reaction that Isaiah is talking about from Judah here. So, again, verses 1 through 7, God's saying he's going to punish the wicked. And then you have this this verse 10 here. Look at verse 10, where God's going to protect the righteous. This is how I started this morning's sermon about the righteous. And this is really where we're going to hope we're going to have our focus on this morning and application as we move forward. So let's read verses 10 through 15 and then I'll come back and talk about verse 10 specifically. 
So in the midst of all this judgment, look at what God says in verse 10 through Isaiah. He says, say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. So Isaiah tells Judah that the Lord has instructed him to speak to them. So in the midst of all this judgment, God still sees the people that are righteous in the midst of that. I don't want you to miss that. Because God tells Isaiah, say to the righteous, like a message of encouragement, a message of, a message of hope. Even though I've already pronounced judgment on the entire nation, I want to say to the righteous that I see you, that I know you're righteous. I know your works. I know you stay close to me. I know you try to follow me. You don't go the way of your government or your religious leaders at the time. And he says, say to them that it will go well with them and they will eat the fruit of their actions. And so remember this. We're going to come back and talk about this. But let's keep reading before I explain that. And he says, woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him for what he deserves. He uh, will be done to him. Oh, my people, the oppressors are children. The women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the directions of your path. So God sees that Israel is being led astray by the leadership. He says, I see it, that they're the ones that are leading you astray. But even though they're leading you astray, the individuals within Judah are still accountable to do the right thing. So he says, the people that are righteous, they will eat the fruit of their actions. And those that are wicked, they too will do the same. So just because government is going the wrong way doesn't mean that the people have to as well, right? We can't blame somebody else for the sins that we commit ourselves. And so God points out, he says, I see those who guide you and lead you astray, in verse 12, and confuse the directions of your paths. The Lord, and look at verse 13, the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. So God is going to intercede. God is going to stand up for his people. And the Lord enters judgment with his elders and the princes. Again, speaking of the leadership, the elders, I believe here, are the, 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 um, the religious leaders and the princes are the, the uh, you know, civic leaders. So he sees both of them. They're both going to be judged because they're the ones that are responsible for the way the nation's going. And even though it's going astray again, I want to point this out, everybody within the gov- within that country needs to be doing the right thing, regardless of how the leaders are going. Just because the leaders are bad doesn't mean the people need to be. Verse 14. And it is you who have devoured the vineyard and plundered the poor in your houses. Again, speaking to the leadership. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? The poor declares the Lord of hosts. So God is holding... The, again, the leaders of the country responsible for their sins and individuals. And let's go back now to verse 10 and talk about that because that's the, the main point I want to focus on this morning. So, again, Isaiah tells Judah that the Lord sees what they're doing and he tells them it's going to go well with them, that they will eat the fruit of their actions. So what does that mean? Now, remember... All of Judah is going to be judged, and how can it go well when we're going to be judged? If I was to tell you, hey, the United States is going to be attacked, and we're going to be totally decimated, 
and another country is going to take all of us and our children into captivity, but it's going to go well with you. What would you think? Does it mean that you're going to be left behind or God's going to put a hedge of protection around you? God's not going to allow you to go into captivity. What does that mean? Because we tend to, when we read those things, we cling to those promises and, and unfortunately take them out of context, right? So let's kind of bring this back to context. And what does it mean to go well with you in the midst of judgment? So hopefully I, I could do a good job of explaining that. So number one, this does not mean that righteous people are immune from earth's troubles. The troubles in our world doesn't mean we're immune from them, right? We can all attest to that. We get sick. We lose jobs. We lose family members. And, and what seem like bad things happen to the righteous people. So how can Isaiah say it's going to go well with you? Again, the whole nation's going to be judged, but it's going to go well with the righteous. What is he talking about there? So again, doesn't mean that, we're, that they are immune from these, the, the earthly troubles that are going to happen, right? Nor are they going to escape the judgment of the nation. And let me give you an example of this. You guys know who Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are? Do you guys remember those people from, okay, one of you do, thank you. Daniel the prophet, you know, really, uh, really good guy. Okay. So these four guys are from, the, from Judah, and they are taken into captivity. But they're righteous, aren't they? They're righteous people that get taken into captivity. So I want you to see that. Just because he says it's going to go well with you doesn't mean you don't get taken into captivity. Because there's four people that did. Okay. So, and we know, again, that righteous people suffer in our world. So if somebody's telling you, you know what, if you do, if you follow God, and you'll never have anything bad happen to you, that is a lie. Right? How many of you have never had anything bad happen to you since you became a believer? Nobody's raised their hand. Okay? That is, that's not the gospel, right? It can go well with us, but it doesn't always go well with us. Scripture says the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. We live in a fallen world, and we are part of that. And so here, again, in our text, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10, so what does he talk about? How can it go well with them if they get taken into captivity? How, what does that mean? Well, we know that God could very well protect all his people and not allow them to go into captivity, but that's not what he does, right? We know that God can deliver us out of anything if he desired to do so. Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. We do not know the will of God and when he will do something and when he, wa- he won't, but we pray that he will. We pray also that he gives us strength to get through it, Right? I believe what God is talking about here through the prophet Isaiah is that God is talking about protecting them from eternal judgment. This judgment that is coming upon Judah is temporal. It's going to be for 70 years. And those people who prolong their sins will ultimately suffer final judgment. But the righteous, it will go well with them and that they will not suffer final judgment. That is far more important than temporal suffering. 
although temporal suffering hurts, and I, I'm right there with everybody, it's not fun to go through, but God is more concerned, I would say, with our eternal souls. Doesn't Jesus say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, everything's going well with him, but loses his soul in the end? That will pale in comparison. So I think the context is talking about Judas being punished for their sins in a temporal fashion, but those that stay faithful to God in the midst of it, it will go well with them. Again, think of Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even though they were in the king's palace, God protected them. Even though they went into captivity, God protected them in the midst of captivity. And, they, and it did go well with them. That's just one example. <clears throat> so let, let's continue on here. Um, I, I want to show you an example of, of this in the New Testament, how God allows the righteous to suffer, in a sense, along with the unrighteous. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And this is called the parable of the, I think it's the wheat and tares, or specifically the tares. It's referred to as both. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. So Jesus is in the midst of presenting parables about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God will be like on earth. That's what he's talking about. And in verse 24, it says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Tares being bad, obviously. And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us to go then and to gather them up? Gather them up. But he said, no, for while you gather up the tares, you may uproot the wheat. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. I think this is a good example of what God is talking about here in Isaiah chapter 3 about allowing the righteous and the wicked to cohabitate with each other for a purpose. We don't always know that purpose, right? We, we want God to always take away the bad things right away. Like, what are you doing, God, in my life that I have to suffer and go through this? We don't always get that answer. And even here, the disciples, as you'll see, let's, let's go to the explanation of this parable to verse 36 in Matthew 13. Drop down to verse 36. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So tell us what you're talking about, about wheat growing and then tares growing with them, and you not pulling them out. And he said this in verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. 
He says, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all the stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. So does that give you a little bit of understanding that God's saying that both righteous and unrighteous reside together and the division will come at the end of the time. But, the, but we're all thinking, well, what about in the meantime? There's not really a real answer again. What I'm thinking is, is that the righteous are allowed to exist with the unrighteous. What for? To be witnesses. Are we not called to go out into the world and evangelize? So I think one example can be is that or one will of God could be, I'm not saying in every instance, is that God allows us to go through things so that we can be a witness to the world around us. It is when we go through hard times that everybody watches the believer. It's easy to to be a believer when everything's going great. What about when it's hard times? What about when the chips are down? When things are going bad? That's when the world watches you. Now, does that make you feel better? I don't know, but that could be one reason why we go through things it's just a it's a process that god uses the other could be to build up our faith in the midst of it that's another reason those are just two but i think the greater one for me is that i can be a witness to the world around me to the people around me that's why god calls us to to remain here to grow in our faith to encourage one another and to be a witness to the rest of the world Think of those people in your life who were the strongest witnesses before you were a believer or even as a believer. People that have hung on to the Lord in the midst of turmoil and tragedy. Some people may even come to faith because they saw that in you or in somebody. And maybe some of you came to faith because you've seen that in somebody. Over and over again in the New Testament, new believers are encouraged to endure. I mean, believers in general are encouraged to endure suffering and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute so here in our text again uh, we have the remnant that have not rebelled and back in isaiah you don't need to go there we're going to stay in the new testament for a moment but here again we have that remnant that has not rebelled they've stayed faithful to the lord despite what their countrymen and their government have been doing right and god says He's going to reward them for the fruit of their actions. Now, God, the promise that they do have, it's not stated here, is that God's not going to forsake them. Remember, God did not forsake Daniel. God did not forsake Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. And were they left alone? No, God was with them in their midst. God protected Daniel in the midst of being in captivity. And I think, I think the same is true here. What Isaiah is saying is that in the midst of captivity, in the midst of tragedy, God is going to be there with you. And ultimately, he's not going to allow you to fall away. God will not forsake you. So with that said, I want to go into a time of, of application and make it a little more personal for each and every one of us. Because we too... We, too, live in, in a culture and in a time of, of faithlessness. I would hope you, would, I, I'd hope you see that in our country. 
right? Faith is under attack. Faith is under fire. All things that we hold dear are slowly and surely being attacked. What will God do with our culture? What will God do with our country? I don't know. Could we have great revival within our country? Yes, we could. Could could God judge our country? Yes, he could. The Lord could judge our nation and every individual if they do not turn to him. But despite that truth, how are you and I supposed to live in the midst of that? How do we live in our world that is against God? How do we live and work in our workplaces and have co-workers and exist with them who also are against the Lord our God? Do we cave in and follow our leadership? What if your religious leaders begin to espouse the doctrine that is false, which I believe a lot of churches are doing nowadays, taking on the beliefs of the world system and reinterpreting Scripture and presenting it to the church as gospel? Are we, are we to follow them as well? So despite... The, the reality of judgment falling, how are we to live in this world? Well, these promises that were given to the righteous in Isaiah chapter 3 are also promises that you and I can also hold on to and take great comfort in. And those promises are this, again, that the Lord will protect us no matter what happens. And now that protection will look different in, in every way. It doesn't mean you won't be harmed. It doesn't mean you won't suffer, right? It does mean that God is with you in the midst of suffering. And ultimately, just like I said with I, in Isaiah chapter 3, that God is going to protect your salvation to the very end. Let me give an example of this in the Gospel of John. Turn with, turn with me to John 10, looking at verses 27 through 39. So John chapter 10, verses 27 through 39. Jesus speaking to his followers, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, never perish. No matter what happens in life, the believer will never perish eternally. That's what he's talking about here. And no one, look at this other promise, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In regards to losing your salvation, I believe that wholeheartedly. If you're a believer, no matter what happens, God will not allow anyone to take you away from him. He will protect you. He will guard you. Verse 29, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So I think God's protection will ensure our salvation And again, God will not allow anything to happen to us where we will fall away from the Lord. A true believer will stay faithful to the Lord. It doesn't mean you won't have lapses in your faith, but ultimately you will not fall away. So the promises apply to us that the Lord will protect us and the Lord will reward us for our faithfulness. Just like he said in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 10, To those people who remain faithful, they will eat of the fruit of their actions. The same holds true for you and me. And the two examples I want to give you come from the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. And this is the section where 
the Apostle John uh, gives us what Jesus is saying to the church who is suffering in the first century. They are going through some very hard times, and God realizes that and recognizes that, and he gives them some encouragement and promises. So in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, drop down to verse 9. As he's speaking to the church, uh, I think this is in church at Ephesus, he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. So God sees it. For those of you that are suffering right now or going through hard times, know this, God sees it. It might not feel like it. You might not think he sees it. You might question it. But we've got to cling to the promises of Scripture that God sees the suffering of his righteous people. And even here, the church of Ephesus, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So God can distinguish between righteousness and unrighteousness. He sees what is going on. And look at what he tells the church at Ephesus. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The church is about to suffer. Righteous people suffer. I'm sorry, that's a reality. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Now, when you went through uh, John's, uh, John probably discussed this in detail, right, John? Is it literal 10 days? What do you say? <laughs> Anyways, I won't even go there. Anyways. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't help but say that. Because you might be reading that. What is that? 10 days? Satan's going to cast a different thing. The point is that believers will suffer. God sees it. Right? And in this church, it's Jesus said Satan himself. That's some, and look at what the encouragement is in verse 10. Be what? Faithful. Be faithful. Despite the suffering. Despite if you're literally thrown into prison or it's not literal. Be faithful. That's the encouragement. Until when? Until I free you from prison? Look at the text. Until death. Christians die. Christians suffer unjustly. Christians go through tribulation even to death. Does that mean God doesn't see it, that God doesn't love you, that God's not real? No. And look at what he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, it's about eternal, spending eternity with God, not the short-term fulfillment, which is great. And I'm all for not suffering, but I'm not like a, dude, are you like, want everyone to suffer kind of guy? No, I don't. I hate suffering. I'm a big baby. Ask my wife. Right, But Scripture says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That's final judgment. God's promise is to protect us from second death. Ultimately, that's what our goal should be. That's what our outlook should be. Drop down to uh, chapter 3 now, Revelation. Let me just give you one more example. John chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 3, look at verses 4 through 6, as Jesus is talking to another church, this one in Sardis, he says this, but you have a few people, after talking about all the bad people, he says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, 
and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Again, God recognizes that even in a church, who he's talking to, that there are some of the people in the church who are true believers, and there's some who aren't. God sees the difference. God has a remnant of people. Just like going back to Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10, there is a remnant of Israelites in Judah who stayed faithful to God throughout the whole thing, despite going through the suffering. And again, going back to Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not, his, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The whole point of me reading that is, again, is it showing you that Christians, we suffer, we go through tribulation, and the encouragement to us is to stay faithful. God is with us. God sees it. God will ultimately bring us to eternal salvation. He will not allow us to lose it. So with those promises in mind, how do we live through the day-to-day suffering? Okay, Robert, it's great that eventually I'm going to get there, but it hurts right now. It stinks right now. How am I called to live in the midst of suffering? Well, turn over just one book from Revelation to the left to the book of Jude, and I think Jude uh, gives us five things that we can do. How shall we live in light of these promises and more so in the midst of a fallen world? Because Jude is talking to the early church who is living through that. There are people who are trying to give false teachings and persuade them to follow after other things. They live in a perverse, fallen world. And if you go down to verse 17, and we're going to read through to verse 25, it closed with just these five points of application. And I need to speed it up here. Let me read this. He says, But you, beloved... Ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own godly lusts. There are ones who cause divisions, worldly minded and devoid of the spirit. So you can see just total chaos in the culture and even within the church. And look at what he says. But you, speaking to the remnant, but you who are faithful... But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's number one. How do we live in the midst of tribulation? Do we just sit there and say, okay, God's going to work it out, and I'm just going to sit here because he's ultimately going to bring me to the end? No. Build up, look again, verse 20. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourself up in your faith. Strengthen yourself. Become stronger in the word of God. A true believer will desire to know more about his Lord. He won't just get saved and say, that's it. That's all that I, that's all that I need. No, we want to learn more about our Lord God because this is how we learn about these promises that I'm talking about you today, what God desires for us in life. Build yourself up in your most holy faith. Don't give up. Don't give up. Secondly, Uh, verse 20, praying in the Holy Spirit. Continue praying. Never stop praying, no matter what happens in our life, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how good it is, we continue to pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So how do we live? We build ourselves up in our faith. We pray. And verse 21, cling to the Lord. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Hold on to God. When we're suffering, that's not the time to let go of God and fall away and isolate ourselves. No, cling to God. Hold on to the Lord even more so, saying, I need you even more now because I don't understand what's going on. I don't like what's going on, and it hurts. Cling to the Lord. Stay close to him. And not only that, I would also encourage you, don't play with your freedom in Christ, meaning I'm saved. Let's see how far, what sins I can do and not fall away from the Lord. Stay closer to the Lord. Don't see how far away you can get. See how close you can get to the Lord. Right? When you were a, when you were a child and you were scared, didn't you run to your mother or father for protection? You didn't run away from them. You ran to them. You wanted to cling on to them. Right? When my son uh, Jonathan was much littler and he got scared, what room do you think he wanted to sleep in? With mom and dad. We'd say the floor. He said, no, on the bed. <laughs> he wants to be close. And I would encourage you as believers, stay close to the Lord your God when you're going through hard times. Build yourselves up in the faith. Pray. Cling to the Lord. Look at verse 22 and 23. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What's this talking about? So not only do you build up yourself and cling to the Lord, but you need to build up your brothers and sisters even when you're hurting. You go out and we still have to live. We can't be crippled and, and paralyzed by fear and doubt. We need to continue on. And that's what Jude is saying here. Have mercy on some who are doubting because there's brothers and sisters in our church who are also hurting. And you can minister to, minister to them in the midst of your suffering as well. You can be an example to them in the midst of your suffering. So build up your brothers and sisters in your faith. And sometimes we have to go and snatch them. We see brothers and sisters falling away from the Lord. We're called to go out and snatch them and bring them back. Right? We need to do that. And lastly, praise the Lord for keeping us strong. Because although we're told to do all these things, we don't do it on our own strength. Look at verses 24 through 25, how Jude closes it out. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, because it's the Lord that ultimately keeps us from stumbling. He says, don't stumble. And then he says, go out there and keep moving forward. But I might stumble. Don't worry, I'll, I'll keep you close. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who makes us blameless and able to stand before God. It's not that we did all these things. It's not that we come to church, go to Bible study, and I got baptized, and now I can stand before the Lord because I did all those things. No, you could stand before the Lord before you did all those things. You do all those things because you're going to stand before the Lord. It is, uh, we praise him because he's the one that makes us stand in his presence, blameless with great joy, not us. And to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, the Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I think that's a good way to close our sermon this morning, is that cling to these promises and God 
will protect you and reward you as you go through them. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the promises of your word. We thank you for the preservation of your word. And it's because of that that we are reading what you spoke to the prophets and apostles over 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for that. I pray that we are encouraged this morning, even in the midst of all that we are going through in our personal lives, and even in our country, Lord God, that we know that you see these things, and that you call us to remain to be faithful, and you will help us to be faithful. You will take us to the very end, and you will reward us for our faithfulness. And so I pray that you would strengthen each and every one of us to remain faithful, And Father God, I pray that if there is anybody in this room who needs you now more than ever, I pray that you would give them the extra strength and faith to cling to you during this time that they're going through. And if there's those this morning who do not even trust in you, who have yet to give their life to you, Lord God, I would pray that they would see how great and awesome you are and how you have so much more for them in this life. And I pray that they would see that and cry out to you. And we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.